people are strange When you're a stranger Faces look ugly When you're alone Women seem wicked When you're unwanted Streets are uneven When you're down When you're strange Faces come out of the rain When you're strange No one remembers your name When you're strange When you're strange When you're strange People are strange When you're a stranger Faces look ugly When you're alone Women seem wicked When you're unwanted Streets are uneven When you're down this has been hello there um i am in the process of working on my file about generations to share it which i will be doing today but along with that like now that i have a better idea of a date i mean idea meaning 1840 kind of time frame um and everything is still possible i mean it could be possible they set up europe before here a lot of possibilities i'm not leaning toward that scenario right now but um so in looking at a date, I've been looking into, um, that I've talked about as far as when I think they've kind of lost some of their brain power. And I was going to tell you what I thought about the Jim Morrison with the doors thing from the music I played the last show. You know, this is the end. Um, but people have to use their own imaginations. What I find interesting about this juncture, and that's why I'd like to share, you know, I have files on all these people, so I just kind of pulled it together. So I'll do my best to do it in segments. Either I share it now or it'll get lost in the dust around here. So anyway, so it's a very interesting juncture because we have several known factors here, okay? We have Jim Morrison, and putting it, some people say he's Chevy Chase. Who cares, right? Um, they're all playing a role. But anyways, we have some dates to work with is my point here. We have Jim Morrison, who allegedly died at 27, and then they had that whole little 27 club going, which I'll explain. But um, but we know that Jim Morrison's dad was born in like 1919 and lived up until just a few years ago. And I also have one of his last interviews, <laughs> which is interesting because... Jim Morrison's dad 
was involved in the PSYOPs, which was the Gulf of Tonka event, which triggered the call for the Vietnam War. So any of that, pretty significant point, right? So one has to surmise, without spending weeks digging through their fake genealogy charts, that what we're looking at, let's say that his dad, who's also a Morrison, was born um, 1919. So let's say we go back 100 years to 1819, right? So that would mean that possibly two, two generations of Morrisons behind the father, starting, let's say, 1840. So let's say two of them over a span of 100 years. I mean, one generation may have lived 30 years. The other one, who knows, right? But in that span, it's kind of safe to start looking at date. So how I see it is they got all of the things in, in place, um, you know, the early movies, the um, radios, the all, all the things they were doling out as a process, right? Well, the era with Morrison and them is obviously a CIA operation, right? I did that show about it. But this is additional things that, you know, when you know more, you can look with a fresher eye, right? So this was, you know, a CIA written camp and Morrison, Jim Morrison, connects to his father. Well, his father played a very, very important role in a pretty big psyops to get this country into Vietnam. So then you can say, well, okay, so what generation of psychopaths are we looking at? You know, where has the hormones started to intercept with the bloodlines? Well, I think we can clearly see that maybe, let's say, the first 1840s group weren't like all jacked up on hormones because I can visually see that. So, um, you know, I'm seeing more usage in the early 1900s. And I also believe that they began the experiments on themselves. So, um, and then they decided to share, right? So, yeah, so we can take a look at some of these assumptions. So anyway, so what I'll be doing today is in segments, I'll explain first um, this whole intersection of the MK7 with, you know, mind control and whatnot. And there's several things to this MK7. Remember, this is their view of how MK7 was. Like, for example, they talk about doing um, experiments in labs, which I, of course I could believe that if it's mean and cruel. <laughs> it's not a leap, right? They talk about doing experiments in labs, but what they were actually also doing, and this is just my view from having been one of those kids in the audience, but my friends and I, we never took the free LSD, and uh, we brought our own. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I was always on the alert as a young kid, but um, so we didn't have any interest in getting LSD from strangers. Um, so, yeah, but I saw the people handing out the LSD. I knew other kids that took the free LSD. And so it's an interesting thought because now they've admitted that they did the LSD in a lab. Well, yeah, that's probably very true, right? It was probably much more horrific than they're admitting, but we'll agree that that part is true, right? So what else did they do with this LSD? Well, if you look at the, the, the words to these songs and stuff, and I'm not going to get into a song review today because I have a lot of things to go over between Jim Morrison, and then I'm going to do a segment on all these generations. And I have the original file, so I'll be able to show you how I first started wondering, like, what? <laughs> what are these generations? So I'll be able to walk you through all that, but the only reasonable way to do it is here again in segments. So anyhow, so yeah, um, I will um, 
get to the first part of Morrison. These cats don't get out of here, please. Please let me come back to Earth without cats racing around. Okay, so, you know, some days I feel like, have you ever um, been out in public and you see this couple, they're kind of annoying because they're sitting there and their kids are running wild <laughs> and they're acting like nothing's going on? Well, that's why I feel some days when I'm recording a show because, you know, I really can't stop and deal with anything. So. I'm really not, I, I'm acknowledging that they're, they're there, but, you know, it has to keep going. So, anyways, <laughs> apologies for the last time in advance. So, anyway, so, yeah, because there's a lot of significance to these words in these songs. For example, you'll notice that they, a lot of these 60 songs, what I've been observing, in, in looking at them with fresh eyes, right, is that they... um have a message, and then a very long, 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 long beat, okay? Um, some of the beats could be longer than the actual words and stuff. So some of them don't have a lot of vocabulary. So you can kind of focus in on those words yourself to see what message are they telling us. Well, in this last song, just off the top of my head, you know the song about the end? You know, they were referencing blue a million times. Well, blue's their favorite color, <laughs> <laughs> with all those masks and the hospital counts, <laughs> you know, come with us. Well, that was probably, you know, trying to get into kids' heads. Come with us, right? Satan, <laughs> all the sexual stuff. So I don't think it's a complicated message if we stop and think about it. Um, and how I see it, it was a new era in the, um, and that's why I'm going backwards from here, because it was a new um, era in their understanding of how to try to manipulate us through music. Because, you know, they made those concerts cheap to go to. I went to all of those Monterey festivals and those concerts. You know, they, you know, we didn't know at the time that the cops were all told to stand down. I only found that out a couple of years ago when I was doing the research because as kids, you know, of course we saw the cops there. But it never connected that nobody got arrested. <laughs> And that was, excuse me, that was part of the plan, that they they weren't there to arrest us. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and I can remember hanging out of my friends in the parking lots a couple of times after taking LSD because we actually believed <laughs> that the cops might have gotten us. <laughs> Little did we know it was a complete operation. That was the plan, not the bug, right, to get a bunch of kids out to concerts, give them LSD, and nobody ever got arrested. Isn't that funny? And you know how they staged that one fake arrest of Jim Morrison early on? Well, that was to get all the kids thinking that Morrison was on our side because, I mean, it's ridiculous how early that first arrest was. And You'll have to go look for yourself. I'm not going to go that deep into it. But how they did it was they supposedly arrested Morrison at one of his early... It may be in some of these files. I haven't looked at these files in a long time. <laughs> so you, welcome for the ride. So, yeah, um Basically, Morrison got arrested on stage, as I recall, in Boston. So that set him on the side of the um, side of um, controlled opposition, right? That's how you get controlled opposition on your side. You get a bunch of kids to think this person's doing good. So then, of course, when the kids get handed LSD and kind of uh, messages through those words that could lead them astray, well, this is just their very early programming techniques, right? And I have found this particular section of people to be very interesting because of the non-pollution of the hormones they would have been using, right? Because now 
they have really um, <laughs> and never underestimate evil. I'm certainly not trying to make evil, and also never underestimate a psychopath that's in the corner like they are now. But anyway, so yeah, you know, there's a significant brain downfall on their part. Okay, so this early programming is just interesting to look at how they pulled it off. Um, because if we've got Morrison, his dad was part of an early psyops. <laughs> It's worth taking a look at. So anyway, so I pulled up these files, and I have them in sections the best that I possibly can. So anyhow, you know, because during that time, if you listen to those songs, I mean, we had Stefan Wolf, they were singing a song called Magic Carpet Ride. Um, yeah, and the Doors actually had a song called Spanish Caravan, which went like, carry me caravan, take me away, take me to Portugal, take me to Spain. Andalusia and fields full of grain. I have to see you again and again. Take me Spanish caravan. Yes, I know you can. Trade winds, fine galleons lost in the sea. I know where treasure is waiting for me. Silver and gold in the mountains of Spain. I have to see you again and again. Take me Spanish caravan. Yes, I know you can. So yeah, so you know, like I said, without digging through their entire genealogy, I think we can make a rough guess here that Morrison's dad was connected to somebody, right? Because he didn't just wander in out of this picture here. So let me explain first a little bit about the... It has to go in order of where I've gotten the notes from, so... And it's a big, messy file. So anyhow, so first, um, let's talk a little bit just for our background as far as um, the general... Um, because... I believe that the lab plan, that they, they, they tricked people into a lab and handed them LSD because they said that they viewed them through two-way glass. I believe that 100%, okay? But it's a good juncture because also, remember, 1971, and all of this <laughs> took place up to 1971 because they say that the Thought Project, MK Ultra lasted from 1953 until about 1973. Now, I can tell you from my own experience, having been there, I was there in the whole area. This all actually evolved around Santa Barbara, which actually I never really even knew until I looked it up today. Um, and so, yeah, because remember, I wasn't the kind of kid who had movie star posters in my room or anything. We went to rock bands, we took acid, we smoked pot. <laughs> it wasn't about, none of us would have thought about hanging around backstage. We weren't those kind of kids, okay? So anyway, so yeah, so I believe the biggest thick of it is not hard to figure out. And even if we go back to this era, and then I'll keep going back from here after I get this recorded. So... They say 53 until 73. So I want to look at 67 to about 72, because I can tell you 100% that is what happened, right? And what's amusing in some of these deals is their story about how they viewed things. So without trampling too far in some of these money projects, I'll give you some things to look for for yourself. So anyway, so yeah, um, how... In the 50s and 60s, it was the height of the Cold War. The United States government feared that Soviet, Chinese, and North Korean agents were using mind control to brainwash U.S. prisoners of war in Korea. 
Um, in response, Alan Dulles, director of the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, approved Project MK Ultra in 1953. The covert operation aimed to develop techniques that could be used against Soviet bloc enemies to control human behavior with drugs and other psychological manipulations. This was before they got careless and just started slinging out things like meth and heroin, right? Well, they did have heroin and meth back then, but I can explain not. The meth and heroin crowd were not part of this LSD pot crowd, okay? That I, that I could tell you, unless I was hanging around the wrong friends, uh, because we avoided that crowd. Uh, <laughs> I mean, pot and LSD have nothing incompatible with, just think about it, meth <laughs> or heroin. <laughs> Everybody has their drug of choice, right? So as kids, that's what this whole effort, from my viewpoint, seemed to focus around. Because what was at these concerts? Well, tons of pot in the air. And there were people actually walking kid to kid, handing out free LSD. So that was all going on. So in my view, the focus here was the pot and the LSD crowd, okay? And that really targeted in a lot of kids. And through that, I knew kids who went on to the um, heroin phase, right? because that came later. But this, I think this was just an early indoctrination, right, to get us used to taking drugs and stuff like that, rebelling against our parents. So anyway, so they said that the program involved more than 150 human experiments, experiments involving psychedelic drugs, paralytics, and electroshock therapy. Good, we've been studying about mental institution, right? They're back at it with the electroshock therapy. Um, I'll have to get back to what paralytics are because I really don't remember it. But electric shock therapy is interesting. That was part of this little program, right? Sometimes the test subjects knew they were participating in a study, but at other times they had no idea, even when the hallucinogenics started taking effect. Yeah, by then it's kind of a little bit too late to identify <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> Trust me, I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll never forget one time at Thanksgiving or something, I was with at my dad's place and we took we had this genius idea to take some LSD and luckily we were pretty smart kids and we realized that whoa we better get out of here <laughs> so, so I can well imagine if you're some test subject it'd be pretty easy to take you down at that point luckily as kids we knew to immediately get out of there without lingering so many of the tests were conducted at universities hospitals or prisons in the United States and Canada most of these took place between 1953 and 1964. So that gives us some more dates, right? Because I'm looking at the dates between 67 and 73. So, so it looks like they may have had it more clandestine-like, you know, as clandestine as these people get, right? They were probably broad range out there whisking in hundreds of people into this deal. But it was more, let's call it clandestine for this crowd, okay? They went on to say, most of these took place between 1953 and 1964, but it's not clear how many people were involved in the test. The agency kept notoriously poor records and destroyed most MK Ultra documents when the program was officially halted in 1973. Well, I'm, I'm relieved to hear that there was no fire involved, but I haven't read the rest of the story yet, so I'll be having my eyes out for any future incidents with fire. And, but it looks like no records, okay? Um, 
and you'll know more about this when I get into all the records that came up missing between all these generations. So, okay. Um, the CIA began to experiment with LSD under the direction of agency chemist and poison expert Sidney Gottlieb, G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B. He believed the agency could harness the drug's mind control properties for brainwashing or psychological torture. Under the auspices of the Project MKUltra, the CIA began to fund studies at Columbia University. Stanford University and other colleges were also funded to do studies on the effects of the drug. <laughs> and nobody finds these people still being in charge alarming, right? <laughs> Boy, we really got rolled, didn't we? So, after a series of tests, the drug was deemed too unpredictable for use in counterintelligence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they may have figured this out by seeing concerts full of kids stoned on LSD to figure this one out, right? Um, MK Ultra also included experiments with MDMA, which is ecstasy. That's really a brain-ripping drug. Kids become paralyzed and all kinds of stuff off of that little fun drug. Mescaline, heroin, barbiturates. Yes, in the 60s, in the late 60s, my best friend, her mother, was tremendously addicted to barbiturates because they were handing those things out like popcorn to all the housewives at that point. Methamphetamine and magic mushrooms. So yeah, that was the uh, I, that to me looks like the rollout cart, right? They were just getting those carts of drugs ready and start with the kids and then gently, you know, with the pot and the LSD. Seems innocent enough, right? It was called. There was an Operation Midnight Climax. It was an MK Ultra project in which government employed prostitutes. And they lured unsuspecting men to CIA safe houses where drug experiments to, took place. They a lot of times employ tricks that would work for them, right? They think everybody's out looking for prostitutes. <laughs> this and see, this is part of the situation too, because they really don't understand us. So that's how I can see these things in these in these situations that they're they're cooking up these projects and they think every man in America is going to be lured in by prostitutes because that is how they think, right? So just remember this is also an interpretation of how they think that we think, you know, anyway, just think about it. Uh, the CIA dosed the men with LSD and then while at times drinking cocktails behind a two-way mirror. They watched the drug effects on the men's behavior. Recording devices were installed in the prostitutes' rooms disguised as electrical outlets. <clears throat> well, that shows some pretty interesting recording devices back then, right? Because that was the 70s. So, um, <clears throat> most of the Operation Midnight Climax experiments took place in San Francisco. Marin County, California, San Francisco, Marin County, California is adjacent to San Francisco and in New York City. The program had little oversight and the CIA agents involved admitted that a free-willing party-like atmosphere prevailed. An agent named George White wrote to this person named Gottlieb, G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B, in 1971, 
Of course, I was a very minor missionary, actually a heteric, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, and cheat, steal, deceive, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the All-Highest? They write this stuff, I don't. So, anyhow, so... Yeah, this is definitely a juncture when they were trying to introduce sex and violence into our brains. If, but you have to listen to the music and, and see for yourself. So let's look a little bit about, first, I have um, Jim Morrison, and then I have his dad. So I'm going to close off here and come back with Jim so we have it in a um, segment. The reason you're just finding out about it is they just decided to tell you about it. Let me read this verbatim. A spokesman for the public relations firm representing the Doors Rock Musical Group says, The group's lead singer, James Morrison, had died in Paris last uh, Saturday, Paris, France. Efforts to confirm the report in Paris were not immediately successful. The spokesman, Bob Gibson, of the public relations firm of Gibson and Stromberg in Los Angeles, could give no explanation of the delay in announcing the death. Gibson says he learned of Morrison's death of apparently natural causes from William Siddons, uh, the singer's personal manager. Unofficially, I can tell you Mr. Morrison is dead. We are waiting, we are waiting Mr. Siddons' arrival here to make it official. So, Jim Morrison is dead, and they say natural causes, which is really a strange thing in a 30-year-old person, or thereabouts, I don't know, holy bless for him. He was buried in uh, in Paris, so I think we'll uh, give a few minutes to the doors. Natural causes, uh, which natural causes, and specifically, he wasn't sure. Uh, someone else had previously said that he died in a Paris hospital last Saturday night of either a heart attack or pneumonia. But his manager, who spoke afterwards, uh, didn't say anything about that, so... I don't know if we're going to know. They said that the reason they didn't announce it prior to the uh, middle of the night this past morning um, was because they wanted to avoid the sort of circus carnival, um, just, you know, horrible, bizarre atmosphere, ghoulish atmosphere almost in the pop culture that followed the deaths of Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. We, I think we'll be reminiscing about the doors tonight. I have a feeling. The reason you're just finding out about it is they just decided to tell you about it. Let me read this verbatim. A spokesman for the public relations firm representing the Doors Rock Musical Group says the group's lead singer, James Morrison, had died in Paris last uh, Saturday, Paris, France. Efforts to confirm the report in Paris were not immediately successful. The spokesman, Bob Gibson, of the public relations firm of Gibson and Stromberg in Los Angeles could give no explanation of the delay in announcing the death. Gibson says he learned of Morrison's death of apparently natural causes from William Siddons, uh, the singer's personal manager. Unofficially, I can tell you Mr. Morrison is dead. We are, wait we are waiting Mr. Siddons' arrival here to make it official. So, 
Jim Morrison is dead, and they say natural causes, which is really a strange thing in a 30-year-old person, or thereabouts, I don't know, holy bless her. He was buried in uh, in Paris, so I think we'll uh, give a few minutes to the doors. Natural causes, uh, which natural causes, and specifically, he wasn't sure. Uh, someone else had previously said that he died in a Paris hospital last Saturday night of either a heart attack or pneumonia. But his manager, who spoke afterwards, uh, didn't say anything about that, so I don't know if we're going to know. They said that the reason they didn't announce it prior to uh, the middle of the night this past morning um, was because they wanted to avoid the sort of circus carnival, um, just, you know, horrible, bizarre atmosphere, ghoulish atmosphere almost in the pop culture that followed the deaths of Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. I think we'll be reminiscing about the door tonight. Okay, let's talk about Jim Morrison. He's an interesting character. And what I'd like to do is I'll talk about Jim Morrison, of his, you know, history and whatnot. And then I'd like to play the clip from Jim Morrison's father, you know, the Admiral, and um, his sister. And just listen to how they describe him. And then after that, I'll come back and talk about what we know about his father, the liar. Um, So, yeah, so I will get started here. His full name, James Douglas Morrison, born December the 8th, 1943, lived supposedly until July the 3rd, 1971. He was an American singer poet and songwriter who was the lead vocalist of the rock band The Doors. Due to his wild personality, poetic lyrics, distinctive voice, unpredictable and erratic performances, and the dramatic circumstances surrounding his life and early death, Morrison is regarded by music critics and fans as one of the most iconic and influential frontman in rock history. Since his death, his fame has endured as one of pop culture's most rebellious and oft-displayed icons, representing the generation gap and youth counterculture. Together with pianist Ray Manzecki, Morrison co-founded The Doors in 1965 in Venice, California. The group spent two years in obscurity until shooting to prominence with their number one single in the United States, Light My Fire, taken from their self-entitled debut album. The debut album, excuse me, was called Light My Fire. Morrison recorded a total of six studio albums with The Doors, all of which sold well and received critical acclaim. Morrison was known for improvising spoken word poetry passages while the the band played live. So, yeah, he would interject different poetry into the music, okay? Manzarek and Morrison embodied hippie counterculture rebellion. Morrison later developed an alcohol dependency through the band's career, which at time affected his performance on stage. Yeah, I saw 
The Doors twice in concert, and around this era of 1971, um, Jim Morrison... Um, the opening act was the Chambers Brothers. That song, Time, Time is Here Today. <laughs> Talk about programming, right? Anyways, look up the Chambers Brothers. And their f- famous song at that time was a song called Time, T-I-M-E, and the Chambers Brothers. It had a very interesting beat to it, okay? So anyway, just an aside. So anyway, so Chambers Brothers, at his last concert that I saw him at, was the opening act. And what essentially happened was when Morrison got on stage, he was so stoned that he actually unzipped his pants. And I don't know if he pulled anything out or not, because remember, we were all pretty high in the stands ourselves. That was the perception. But now that we know a little bit more about Jim Morrison, (laughs) all I could really testify to was that he was so stoned and he was like screaming into the microphone at the audience and this was at the, like, I think it was the Santa Barbara Bowl. And um, so he was screaming at the audience. And at that point, the, or Earl, Grant, Earl Warren Showgrounds, I forget which. But anyway, so Morrison was screaming at the kids in the audience. And at that point, they opened the gates to the concert. And a lot of the kids were leaving at that point. But of course, me and my sneaky friends, we didn't flee immediately because we... <laughs> we didn't want to start driving right away for fear of the cops so boy how foolish time we spent there right we could have we could have gotten our cars and taken off but we thought being too high on lsd that the cops might have nabbed us so yeah so morrison was really out of his mind by that point so um and you'll hear more when you hear from his father and his sister this stuff is very interesting to me how they view things right so Morrison, in 1971, he died unexpectedly in Paris at the age of 27 amid conflicting witness reports. His premature death made him a member of the infamous 27 Club. Since no autopsy was performed, the cause of Morrison's death remains disputed. You start to notice a lot of these little traps they leave in these rabbit holes along the way. Yeah. A a well-executed psyops between Morrison's dad with that Tonka deal, you know, getting this country into war, which really, that was a real war, okay? A lot of people were murdered during that war. So him and his dad are involved with a mass slaughter of U.S. kids acting like they're rock stars. I mean, these are some pretty... um, pretty evil folks right so um he um his premature death the 27 club yeah jimmy um hendrick supposedly died at 27 also although the doors recorded two more albums after morrison died his death severely affected the band's fortunes and they split up two years later so in 2011, a Rolling Stone reader, a Rolling Stone reader pick placed Morrison in fifth place of the magazine's best lead singers of all time. In another Rolling Stone list entitled The 100 Greatest Singers of All Time, Morrison was ranked 47th. He was also ranked number 22 on Classic Rocks magazine. That, that group was the 50 greatest singers in rock. 
1993, Morrison was inducted into the Rock and Rock Hall of Fame as a member of the Doors. See, these things can really go on forever, can't they? <laughs> Get the kid on stage for a couple of years, and then years it becomes his cash cow and, and fear machine. And also, beyond controlling the money, it's about controlling our minds, right? Because people actually spend more time discussing these things than they do people close to them, sadly. So... Anyways, um, I'm just going to pull some things out of here. It said that um, the Doors late singer Jim Morrison wrote The Crystal Ship. The Crystal Ship is a song. Well, if, there, if there's space in here, I'll put in The Crystal Ship and somewhere else because The Crystal Ship is really significant. So they said that he wrote The Crystal Ship. Well, he didn't write any of these, okay? This was written by CIA members. <laughs> so... But the story is, when he was dropping acid on Isla Vista Beach one night, I lived in Isla Vista exactly at that time, um, it transfixed by the glittering lights of Platform Holly, an offshore oil rig. Yeah, I don't know. They said that, yeah, see, they always have to come up with some sort of story, right? They can't say, hey, a bunch of CIA agents were sitting around having some cocktails, and they wrote this song for you kids to listen to. So that's a bit about Morrison. Um, I didn't highlight much more about him. I mean, I could go on for the next 10 years, but um, one thing I found interesting about this was um, he had a daughter, allegedly, okay? And I don't like to get too deep into the kids, but this kid is already supposedly dead, so we'll talk about her. Um, there was a woman named Pamela Corson, C-O-U-R-S-O-M. That was supposedly Morrison's common-law wife. She died from a heroin overdose in April 1974, also at the age of 27. The same age Jim was when he died three years before her. After her death, the Corsons inherited part of Morrison's estate, including the rock legend's poetry and writings. So, yeah, then Oliver Stone did a film. I mean, you know, the, the, the information about Morrison is very easy to find. I'm just going to read the things that I found interesting. So, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and we'll play the, uh, it really puts it into context by hearing his um, psycho dad and sister <laughs> and their vague memories of um, their supposedly brother and son in all of this. Yeah, I believe they, they, they thought they were family members. I believe that this is just how the CIA staged it. And they put the dad and the sister out there for this interview. It did, it just didn't happen out of, out of the blue, right? So it's fascinating to look at how they repeat their talking points over all this time. Because remember, these are practiced liars. The dad and the sister, let's say Morrison was supposedly dead at 27. This was just a few years before dad died in 2012 or something like that. So dad and sister had been effectively lying since, what, 2017. They had been going around lying about this stuff. So it's just it's just interesting to document it and take a look at what their version of it was. So... The next will be the interview between his father, George Stephen, Stephen Morrison, and his sister, Anne Robin Morrison. The father was born in 1919 and lived until 2008. 
Now, this interview is from June of 2012. So it's the closest interview to when the father actually died. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> one thing in the comments and, you know, I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm just trying to show you how, how impactful these little stage psyops are. And remember, I believed all this stuff myself, right? At one point. Um, and somebody in the comments on this show, I'm going to be sharing the audio with, because the audio clearly describes what's going on, okay? Because, oh, before I move on, the other members of this 27 Club, they're predominantly people like um, Brian Jones, I think he was an early Beatle guy, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and some person called Jean-Michael Basquiat, Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse, all of those people supposedly dead at 27. So anyways, <laughs> um, where was I going here just one second ago? Um, oh, the, the comment from the comments, and then I'll play the clip. The comment said, what a heartbreaking final line. He was talking about this clip I'm going to play, what, he's, what he said at the end. And he went on to say, the father said, he was somebody you'd like to know, meeting Jim. You can see by the pain in his face that his son was somebody that he would like us to have known. Anyway, enjoy the interview. Well, Jim was a very uh, intelligent, bright young man and uh, behaved himself pretty well, really. And uh, he liked to uh, write and uh, draw pictures. He was an avid reader. He read everything and then he also wrote. He would write in a, he had a book and he would, this was in high school, he would learn a new word and then he'd write a whole story around it. So his vocabulary was incredible. He liked all the classics and uh, read everything he could get his hands on <clears throat> and he was always delighted to go to his grandmother's house because she had a library. One time he just got up out of class and told his teacher he was going to have a brain tumor removed and he just walked out of class to go read. When he graduated from high school he asked my parents for the complete works of Nietzsche. Most kids want a car. <laughs> I think my brothers and I were pretty close because uh, we moved a lot so whenever we moved we were just the ones we knew. The, the life that I lived as a, as a naval officer required that you to have a period ashore and a period at sea, which meant that it, probably half the time I was gone. I tried to make him feel like he was the head of the household and he tried to take care of his mother while I was gone. He went on all the ships that I served in. It was clear that while he had some uh, admiration for the Navy and, and my fact that I was in it, but he didn't have any interest in it himself to be, a, to be a sailor or to be an officer. He was three years older but four years in grades. So by the time I was in high school he was in college. I thought he would have a success because he was smart and uh, creative and could uh, write well. We were delighted he went to college. He started it out in, in Florida. I wanted to get him to go to graduate school. We had read a course about the film school at UCLA and I was looking forward to his graduating and going into Hollywood. I just thought he would be a beatnik and be poor all his life. 
I even spent one whole night crying about it, worrying that he was, no one was going to ever realize his talent because I knew he wouldn't compromise and become a plumber or I knew he wasn't going to just do anything. When he ended up in rock music, I was absolutely flabbergasted. Well, he called me on the phone said he was going on the road with a rock band. And uh, it took me a little bit to gather in what he was really saying, but then, sure enough, that's what it was. And I told him, that's ridiculous, <laughs> that uh, you're, you're not a singer, you can't sing. And I told him, he was, he was really, I said, you are on the wrong track here. Get yourself a job. <laughs> that, to me, was not a job. <laughs> I don't know when I was aware that he was in a band. I think it all happened rather quickly. My mom sent me the first album with no note, just the album in a package. And when I opened it, I, 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 I was just astounded that that was my brother on the cover. Okay, they've got a little rock band there, and they're making some headway. That's fine. But when he turned up on the national TV, uh, why, I was amazed. I didn't have any idea of the talent he had as an entertainer. I still feel <clears throat> that uh, his talent was not vocal, as in, in, the, in the classic term, but that he was an entertainer. He did say a couple times that he thought that the audience deserved a spectacle. They had paid all that money and they, they came to such a huge arena by the time he was famous that he needed to be a showman. We never had an occasion to see them. They were never in the same area. My dad never stopped to listen. They really never stopped to listen to the music. They more just read about it and heard about it. And um, they didn't really know very much about what he was actually doing. I haven't even heard the lyrics. I've heard the titles like Light My Fire. I, that's about it. And what it goes on after that, I couldn't tell you. I just... I'm afraid I'm a, a very poor uh, interpreter of his, of his talent. My dad was in the Navy. He was still an admiral, and um, he had his own life. And I think Jim knew that this would be an issue with my parents. And I think he just separated himself completely. Well, you know, I didn't know Jim very well after he left home. We didn't see him much. So I didn't have a chance to really appraise his mental attitude in, in, uh, in his last years. He did tell me one time he didn't want to sing Light My Fire again. <laughs> he didn't want to do what the audiences wanted to hear from him. And when he wanted to do his poetry, they didn't want to listen. So I don't, I don't know if he thought fame was getting him what he wanted. I think Jim went to Paris to escape what he had in the United States, to gain his own freedom, allowing him to do his own writing and experience something new. A friend called and said to my husband, They've, it's on the radio that, that Anne's brother died. You better find out. And it was it was days later that we heard it. Jim was already buried when we heard it. We were notified by the um, naval, uh, 
by the naval attaché uh, uh, at the embassy in Paris sent me a message and said that Jim had died of a heart attack in a Paris hospital. It was, losing him was awful. It was just awful. And, and I'm, uh, it took me a long, long time and to get over it. And um, it was hard Partly because of all the speculation that maybe he wasn't dead. Deep in your heart, you thought, oh, well, he would have done something like that. Um, it's possible. Maybe he did just want to get away and have a new life, and he'll turn up later. So even though I pretty much believed he was dead, it, it left a little opening. Yeah, I was impressed with the f fact that here is my son being interred really quite honorably into the great cemetery in Paris, and uh, made you realize how well known and how well liked he was. My dad thought for a long time, he took it very seriously what he was going to put on the grave. I went back to my Greek teacher and I said, uh, what we're looking for is uh, something for the gravestone, which sums up his philosophy. So he put in Greek, um, true to his own destiny or true to his own spirit. And I thought that was just the perfect, perfect thing to put on his tombstone. And he went his own way, and he was true to his own ambition, to his own aspirations. And that was his goal in life, and he made, he made it. I would like him to be remembered for his poetry and his music and his, his living his life his way. Well, basically, he was a good man. He's a good, solid citizen. He had, he had moral and, and ethical standards that were very high. And uh, uh, I think it, uh, he, he was just somebody you would be, like to know. Let's talk about Jim Morrison's father, and I'll probably do a, depending on how long it takes to go through the information I've been saving up about it, the dad, um, may do it in a separate thing, but we'll see as we go along here. So, um, okay, what is going on with dad um, or mom, however you want to look at it? Okay, it would have helped if I would have scrolled back up here before I flicked on the microphone because um, there's a lot to this generation stuff but this stuff is also important to take a look at because it puts things into perspective okay so I'm on to dad here give me one second here dad um, his full name George Stephen Stephen Morrison birth date January the 7th 1919 died November the 17th, 2008. He was a United States Navy Rear Admiral and Naval av Aviator. Morrison, <clears throat> excuse me, was commander of the United States Naval Forces during the Gulf of Tonka incident 
of August 1964. The Gulf of Tonka incident sparked an escalation of American involvement in the Vietnam War. He was the father of Jim Morrison, the lead singer of the rock band The Doors, who died in July the 3rd, 1971. So, he was born in Rome, Georgia. <laughs> I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried. I forgot. I See, when you when you take a look back at research, sometimes you'll find things that you had no clue about. Rome, Georgia. That's pretty good, right? Okay, so he was born in Rome, Georgia. He was a son of Caroline, and Caroline, her maiden name was Hoover. Caroline Hoover was born in 1891 and died in 1984. And his father was Paul Raymond Morrison, and he was he <clears throat> excuse me he was alive from 1886 to 1971, and he was raised in Leesburg, Florida. So this is very interesting because now we're looking between, I don't know, <clears throat> 1840 and 1886. So we pretty much have the father and we have the father's parents. So um, the father, he entered the U.S. Naval Academy in 1938. He graduated in 1941 and was commissioned an ensign. He was sent to Hawaii. He joined the crew of the destroyer USS Pruitt on December the 7th, 1941. Morrison witnessed a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, funny how that worked, right? He happened to just be there during Pearl Harbor. Um, who was that Ford guy that was there just happened to take the pictures? Okay, <clears throat> Morrison began flight training in 1943 at Naval Air Station, Pensacola, Florida, and graduated in the spring of 1944. He flew missions in the Pacific Theater for the duration of World War II. He served as an instructor on nuclear weapons programs following the end of the year. While during the Korean War, he served at the Joint Operations Center in Seoul, that would be Seoul, Korea. This resulted in the award of the Bronze Star Medal with V for Valor Device. In 1963, Morrison took command of the Essex-class aircraft carrier US, USS Bon Hami Richard flagship of a third fleet carrier division of the Pacific. So this Bon Hami Richard was the boat he hopped on. And that had been based at the Naval Air Station in Alameda, California. He was in command of the carrier division during the controversial Gulf of Tonka incident in August 1964, which resulted effectively in the true beginning of the Vietnam War by President Lyndon Johnson. In 1967, wait a minute, <clears throat> oh, wait a minute, he was, um, yeah, okay, well, he was at the Tonka thing in August of six, 1964, and then um, a few years later, it looks like, in 1967, Morrison was promoted to Rear Admiral. 
So, um, and he did these task groups and stuff, not that interested in that. <clears throat> but anyway, so yeah, so he was there in the Tonka thing. And the Tonka thing is coming up right now. Um, he got a lot of high positions. Um, but remember, the Vietnam War was not a fake war, okay? Lots of I had a cousin. Lots of people were very harmed by the Vietnam War. And also, remember, these wars are a time to pull real men out of service, so to speak. I don't need to go into more detail than that, but remember, people like my cousin got drafted into the Vietnam War, who was really a man and came out not so well, not going to go there, but wars include lots of vaccines, they can control, they could also be learning how to, you know, which ones of us are the desirable types, you know what I mean? So we don't have to get all creepy about this, but that is part of the effect of these wars to wipe out part of the male population. And also, of course, to disrupt the females and the families. So, okay, so the Gulf of Tonkin, T-O-N-K-I-N incident, was also known as the USS Maddox incident, M-A-D-D-O-X. It was an international confrontation that led to the United States engaging more... See how they say more directly? Well, they were already over there in full force, right? It involved both a proven con confrontation. They said this proven, proven con confrontation happened on August the 2nd, 1964. It was carried out by North Vietnamese forces in response to covert operations in the coastal region of the Gulf. And a second claimed confrontation on August the 4th, 1964. So we have two claimed confrontations, one on August the 2nd, the other on August the 4th. This was between ships of North Vietnam and the United States in the waters of the Gulf of Tonkin. That's why it's called the Gulf of Tonkin incident. The original American report blamed North Vietnam for both incidents. But further investigation suggested that the dismissal by Department of State and other government personnel of legitimate concerns. Oh, what are they talking about? Anyways, the government, they write the craziest sentences here. Um, well, the, the second, the first incident, um, there were concerns regarding the veracity of the second incident. And that was used to justify an escalation, escalation, right, by the U.S. to a state of war against North Vietnam. Okay, so the second one would be August the 4th, 1964, triggered this Tonkin deal. So how did this get set up? August the 2nd, 1964, the destroyer USS Maddox while performing a signals intelligent patrol as part of the DeSoto operations, was claimed to have been approached by three North Vietnamese Navy torpedo boats of the 135th Torpedo Squadron. The North Vietnamese boats attacked with torpedoes and machine gun fire. One U.S. aircraft was damaged. Three North Vietnamese Vietnamese torpedo boats were damaged, and four North Vietnamese sailors were killed, and six more North Vietnamese sailors were wounded. There were no U.S. casualties. 
Maddox was unscathed except for a single bullet hole from a Vietnamese machine gun round. The National Security Agency, also known as the NSA, originally claimed that another sea battle, another sea battle that was the second Gulf of Tonkin incident, occurred on August the 4th. But instead, evidence was found of Tonkin ghosts, false radar images, <laughs> and not actual North Vietnamese torpedo boats. So, yeah, there was a lot of controversy over this Tonkin War. I think that we can all rest assured that uh, it was rigged up, right? If you have any confusion, then you might want to go over and look at what they had to say on Wikipedia. So, what's significant about this is the, um, let me see, oh, let me tell you one, one, one of their last studies. In 2005, an internal National Security Agency historical study was declassified. It concluded that Maddox had engaged the North Vietnamese Army on December 2nd, but there was no North Vietnamese naval vessels present during the reported incident of August the 4th. <laughs> so. Okay, um, how did this get announced? Well, it got announced by President Lyndon Johnson in 1964. Shortly before midnight on August the 4th, Johnson interrupted national television to make an announcement in which he described an attack by North Vietnamese vessels on two U.S. Navy warships, Maddox and another ship called Turner Joy, T-U-R-N-E-R, Joy, and requested authority to undertake a military response. Johnson's speech repeated the um, theme that dramatized Hoi Chi Minh as the aggressor, and which put the United States into a more acceptable defensive posture. <laughs> Sorry, but I, I'm not laughing that anybody was murdered. I'm just saying that these people have some pretty distinct patterns here, okay? You know, one, one profile that a psychopath always takes is the distinct one of being the victim. And if you look through all their, their things with the, how oppressed they are and all that kind of stuff, it starts to add up, right? Johnson also referred to the attacks as having taken place on the high seas, suggesting that they had occurred, occurred in international waters. Johnson emphasized commitment to both the American people and the South Vietnamese government. He also reminded Americans that there was no desire for war. A close scrutiny of Johnson's public statements reveals no mention of preparations for overt warfare and no indication of the nature and extent of covert land and air measures that already were operational. So they left off all of the uh, covert stuff that was going on leading up to this little fight in the ocean there, right? Johnson's statements were short to minimize the U.S. role in the conflict, a clear inconsistency existed between Johnson's actions and his public discourse. Yes, of course, they're always doing one thing and saying something else. It doesn't really take a Ph.D. to figure this stuff out, right? Within 30 minutes of the August 4th incident, Johnson had decided on retaliatory attacks. 
Within 30 minutes, okay, he announces this deal. 30 minutes later, he has decided to make retaliatory attacks. And that was dubbed Operation Pierce Arrow, A-R-R-O-W. That same day, he used the hotline to Moscow and assured the Soviets he had no intention in opening a broader war in Vietnam. Early on August the 5th, Boy, but they were busy. Johnson publicly ordered retaliatory measures stating, The determination of all Americans to carry out our full commitment to the people and to the government of South Vietnam will be redoubled by this outrage. One hour and 40 minutes after his speech, aircraft launched from U.S. carriers the, oh, the aircraft carriers reached North Vietnam targets. One hour and 40 minutes later, the U.S. already had targets of North Vietnamese people, okay? On August the 5th, at 10.40 in the morning, these planes bombed four torpedo, four torpedo boat ba- bases and an oil storage facility in Vinh. Well, well, well. So anyways, let me see how much time do I, if I should break this up or not. Um, no, we're okay for now. Okay, so yeah, let's finish up with Daddy-O here. Um, generations, where was Okay. So yeah, um, let me give you the reaction to Congress, and then we got to get moving on the rest of the generation stuff. I find this stuff very interesting. So if in segments, if you don't find it interesting, you can just skip around. So anyway, so... They did a fundraiser, and I can't remember why I was looking at that. Um, you know, they always got the money, right? While Johnson's final resolution was being drafted, U.S. Senator Wayne Morse attempted to hold a fundraiser to raise awareness about possible faulty records of the incident involving Maddox. Moore supposedly received a call from an informant who who has remained anonymous, urging Moore to investigate official logbooks of Maddox. That was the boat that the dad was on, right? Maddox. These logs were not available. These logs were not available before Johnson's resolution was presented to Congress. Excuse me. So the records weren't available. No fires yet. After urging Congress that they should be wary of Johnson's Johnson's coming attempt to convince Congress of his resolution, Morse failed to gain enough cooperation and support from his colleagues to mount any kind of movement to stop it. Imagine that. This Morse guy tried to stop Johnson from going over there and ripping Vietnam to shreds, and he got ignored. Um... Morse went on to contend in speeches to Congress that the actions taken by the United States were actions outside the Constitution and were acts of war rather than acts of defense. This looks like some pretty interesting controlled operation techniques here. Morse's efforts were not immediately met with support, largely because he revealed no sources and was working with very limited information. It was not until after the United States, let me scroll up here without flying past it, after the United States became more involved in the war 
that his claim began to gain support throughout the United States government. Isn't that interesting? It already They set the blast on fire, and now they're evaluating. So there was this thing called this distortion of the event, and the U.S. government was still seeking evidence on the night of August 4th when Johnson gave his address to the American public on the incident. Messages recorded that day indicate that neither Johnson nor McNamara, that was, I think he was defense secretary, was neither Johnson nor McNamara was certain of an attack. Boy, they seem kind of certain to me. Various news sources, including Time, Life, and Newsweek, published articles throughout August on the West, uh, excuse me, they published articles throughout August on the Tonkin Gulf incident. So they were then reported in the news, right? Time reported, through the darkness from the west and south, intruders boldly sped, at least six of them. They opened fire on the destroyers with automatic weapons, this time from as close as 2,000 yards. Time stated at the time that there was no doubt in Sharp's mind that the U.S. would now have to, an- would now have to answer this attack. And there was no debate or confusion within the administration regarding the incident. So, yeah, there were a lot of early allegations that this was being set up. But, you know, this makes them look like they've actually investigated something, right? So, then they all have their different views. And this is the kind of stuff that um, I'll have a couple more things here. But this is extensive. But it just shows the work that goes into creating a PSYOPs. They needed a reason, just like with the Japan thing. I mean, surprise, surprise. The Tonkin deal is the exact same program, right? Um, cause, cause and effect. Get those creepy Vietnamese people to come near your ships, and with outrage, you can just blast them out of the water and then somehow be able to justify it. And even when they're caught, it does not stick. So, um... I'll close with this one about these people, and then I'll be getting into the really interesting stuff about the generations. <laughs> yeah, it's something else. So anyway, so um, this thing, there was a later statement that I had here, and it said, in 1967, former naval officer John White wrote a letter to the editor of the New Haven Register. He asserts, I maintain that President Johnson and Secretary McNamara and the Joint Chiefs of Staff gave false information to Congress in their report about U.S. destroyers being attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin. White continued his whistleblowing activities in the 1968 documentary, In the Year of the Pig. (laughs) They come up with all these people and everybody believes them, right? all these little fake agents and stuff. So anyway, so onward to the genealogy stuff next. Back in the 60s, I used to be in a group called The Doors. Jim Morrison, John Densmore, Robbie Krieger, Ray Manzarek. And uh, we had a lot of fun, a lot of trouble, a lot of excitement, a lot of controversy, arrests, Miami, obscenity busts, arcs all over the place. A lot of fun. Jim Morrison was a reincarnation 
the Greek god Dionysus. He was Dionysus taken flesh, come into the 20th century. Jim existed to take us on a psychic voyage. He was the road man, he was the shaman, he was the madman, and he was the sensitive poet. About 1971, Jim said, listen, I want to get away for a while. I want to take a little vacation. Hey, good idea, man. Album's finished, tours, let's just relax, take it easy. Where are you going to go? He said, well, I'm going to go to Paris. Great idea. Paris, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, American writers in Paris, an American in Paris. What could be better? And uh, unfortunately, uh, I never saw Jim Morrison again. He never came back from Paris. There are rumors, stories about Jim Morrison not being dead, but uh, I think they're just stories. I think Jim, uh, Jim is an immortal. I think Dionysus went back to Mount Olympus. I think he's dwelling up there with the gods and he's watching us down here and he's laughing. So uh, in 1977, all these bands came into existence. X, The Blasters, The Plugs, and uh, finally I went to the Whiskey to see a band called X. And I was just knocked out, blown away. I thought, this band has more power, more energy, more excitement than any band I've seen in the last 10 years. And I guess the similarity between The Doors and X is uh, very strong. Although we don't play the same, our styles were different, but poetry first. First the lyrics, first the words, what are the songs all about, then put some good music to those songs. So being a producer with X is uh, a very easy job. They're terrific. They're really good people to work with and uh, very little ego problems, and, uh, very little controversy. So I just sit back and relax and let everybody else handle it. They make the music, play takes care of the sound, and I just sit there and go, I like it. I like that. I don't like that. I like that. And that's, that's my role. Simple. Ray Manzarek, a man who is spanning generations of... time like now to continue on with this little tiny bit of data dump <laughs> okay this after these next couple of segments should kind of catch you up and hopefully encourage you to do some looking around for yourself we got here because not enough looking around not enough looking around went on so just a suggestion 
So first, I would like to, um, while we're on the subject of um, Jim Morrison and that gang, uh, let me see here. Um, oh, let me clear up a couple of things here. Just something for you to think about, okay? Um, they have, um, oh, where was I? Okay, here we are. Um, I'm going to just have a few odds and ends here to start with. And um, think about this as far as all those buildings, those crumbling walls. Um, they have this one wall in London that goes to different parts of London, okay, this crumbled wall. Um, how I'm seeing this, and this is why I encourage you to look for yourself, is it appears to me that you know, people go on vacation, they visit old castles, they visit ruins, it's part of the travel industry, places like Turkey, it's their biggest industry, and then you get these people introducing things and saying things like, well, we've also got these star fort shapes. Well, if we're looking at magic, a lot of things are going to be coded, okay? And let me tell you why with some of that in a second here. So, um, it's almost like passive income to these people, right? They set them up, you know, throw out the bricks and the walls and <laughs> whatever it is, and the cash rolls in, right? And everything could logically be brushed off as old. Not much need for a ton of upkeep. <laughs> and the sales of brochures, the, the, you know, all the stuff that goes along with the books, the souvenirs, and, um, I was in the Chotsky business. It's a Jewish term. That means trinkets. And I sold Chotskys. That's where I got into the thing with Intel. I had designed an entire line for them. But anyway, so yeah, it's the trinket line. Very, very gypsy-esque, right? So um, yeah, so it actually is a pretty um, evil genius plot to have a pretty good passive income deal going, right? Because you just set up these brick walls, you open up a gift shop, and there you go, you know, busloads of tourists come into your town, and you know, it's like supporting the entire turkeys in trouble. I'm not going to get into the whole deal, but part of the reason they're in trouble is because of the loss of tourism the last couple of years is one factor, okay? So, yeah, so these things become like cash cows. I mean, it's just like a roaming circus of places for people to go and visit. No longer did the circus need to travel town by town. They just put them up in buildings. <laughs> and another thing is, um, this Tartaria stuff I mentioned, they seem to think that these... Um, energy was sh shot off the tops of these buildings. Well, first of all, I would have to believe these buildings existed any sooner than the mid-1800s, okay? That's my big stumbling block with that because I can't see that a lot of this really existed prior to the mid-1800s. <laughs> so, the fact that they claim that these Tartarian homes and buildings had wind-powered fans which generated electricity... This electricity was stored in capacitors and regulated by circuit breakers found on the premises. Whenever electricity was required for additional tasks, all someone had to do was flip a switch for the desired outcome. So then I was, I just tried to get a, it's, I'm not going to plow through all their videos 
<laughs> I just wanted a general understanding of where they think this happened or how they think this happens because one of them has a very extensive video talking about um, how this stuff just shoots from buildings to buildings and it has to do with those domes and the skinny things on the top. Well, I see all of this as coding, okay? <laughs> so, and then the agents pushing people around and pointing in the coding direction. So anyway, so what they said about the how the Tartarians get their energy, the energy was then captured through towers and obelisk and stored in the red and white stripe power stations of the high civilization we now call Great Tartaria. So they're saying that the energy was captured through those towers and those obelisks. Those obelisks aren't because these are penis symbols for these gypsy freaks. They're just they're just kind of tossed in. You see the logic here? So they've identified towers and obelisks, but I see these towers and obelisks as something completely different. So, you know, anyways, I'm just telling you what they're saying. And they say it's stored in the red and white striped power stations. Yeah, well, I think if we were that, I don't believe I was a Tartarian, first of all, let's clear that up. <laughs> Whoever we were, I think we were very advanced, and I don't think we needed to shoot electricity from buildings. Um, they said that they, they seemed to feel that this electromagnetic energy was extracted and stored in torrid coils at the power plant summits covered with copper positioned below the towers. So they have this whole thing because there's these they found these brass coils in some in these old buildings, right? And a lot of these old buildings do in fact have those domes. But I would argue that is just a um, element of design <laughs> that, you know, just like the uh, massive amount of gothic buildings around and the romanesque, I would argue that it's a indicator these people are basically lazy and were in a rush so this was a more efficient plan to stick with <laughs> a few you don't want to muck it up with too many design elements i mean just logically think about this right so i think this was set up like a movie set and not any of these buildings could possibly be conductors of electricity but you can think what you want to think okay because here's the deal everything about this country is coded in some manner that is a massive rabbit hole going on but you know what I find the most interesting that I haven't seen anybody talking about? I don't know enough about words and stuff to sort this one out. But let me put this one on the table. We have the Pentagon, okay? That's the headquarter building of the United States Department of Defense. Pretty big deal, right? D-O-D. <laughs> As a symbol of the U.S. military. The phrase, the Pentagon, is also often used as a metaphor for the Department of Defense and its leadership. So everything can be referred to as the Pentagon, right? The building, the people, all of that, right? It is located in Arlington County, Virginia, across the Potomac. Okay, what I don't understand about the Pentagon is... And the Pentagon sounds an awful like like the pentagram, okay? Pentagram, Pentagon. So yeah, so and the Pentagon is also an eight-shaped building, which I found interesting. And um, octagon house designs have been around, they say, for thousands of years, and were popular in the mid 1800s in the United States. And thousands of homes built in an eight-sided geometric configuration. 
In fact, the headquarters of the American Institute of Architects in Washington, D.C. is located in a historical building called the Octagon that was built in 1801. So the eight-sided design is a well-established architectural type. So yeah, I would start to wonder in all of these weird buildings because these people also talk about star, star forts or something like that, star forts because of these symbols. Well, I would argue that is not tr even correct because this isn't a dream from the Tartarians. This is a dream from the psychopaths running things now. So of course we would expect it to be highly coded, right? So they just happen to pick out an octagon-sized building to house the Pentagon. Now that's where I would like to find the answer. Why did they pick an octagon building to be the pretty significant building here, right? We're talking symbolism. I mean, come on, the Department of Defense, how much more symbolism is there for these psychopaths, right? So I am far more interested, if anybody knows why, why do we have this building or this organization called the Pentagon, which sounds very much like a um, pentagram, <laughs> so and they're housed in an an octo shaped house, an oct. <laughs> so that's my burning question out of all this because I basically um, and also since 1968, the, this style house became called. It was so popular, top cider homes. So this is my big question. Why did all these eight-sided places become popular? More so the question of total BS of, of it's rocks laying on the ground, right? So um, in 1960, since 68, they were called top cider homes. And they had been designing, pre-engineering, and prefabricating octagon houses. Same shape as the pentagon or the pentagram. <laughs> With thousands of oct octagon homes shipped worldwide, no prefab, pre-engineered, or kit house companies has top ciders experience or expertise in octagon home buildings. So, yeah, these top cider things are tops in the eight-sided building business, right? So, what is that about? So, they said that early era top cider homes were all octagon shaped. Because remember, a lot of these little fortress castle things also use octagon shapes. So, early topsider homes were all octagon shape and built on pedestal foundations. For this foundation type, the structural characteristics of an eight-sided design were superior and far more efficient to build than square or roundhouses. Well, I think that's probably true, um, but I'm not going to get into the weeds on all that, I'm interested in why all these eight-sided houses and <laughs> what does an eight-sided Department of Defense mean. So anyway, so enough of that. So I'll engage a little bit of tidbits about Chevy Chase and Jim Morrison because, you know, it's kind of a fun little segment I'll add in here. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go completely into the weeds on this deal, but I'll tell you what I found out so far. I'm pretty convinced that Chevy Chase probably is Jim Morrison, okay? Now, there's a slight height difference, but I, I don't see it. And I'm not, like I said, somebody did a show, which I'll give you the words to go look for yourself, okay? Um, you know, there's a, there's enough there because I don't, I think that Vietnam and that whole Tonka thing was a critical deal 
And to these bloodthirsty psychopaths, that would be a high position of honor, what Morrison's dad did, okay, with that whole Tonka deal, because that is how they work. That would be a very rewarded position to pull that stunt off, because think about it. Lots of lives were ruined. I mean, that was, if you want, and I don't want to get too far into this, but just look at the sheer mass and the years that went on, the horror to all those people in Vietnam, all the kids here, the, you know, the whole magnitude of it. I suspect a very high-level person would be the one that would be the face of this deal, okay? This is bigger than Bundy. I mean, Bundy was really carpet change, right? Because Bundy was just lurking around outside of universities, bumping off long-haired, dark-haired females, supposedly. This is a massive, massive deal, okay, that we're looking at here. And that's why I've been spending more time on it, because pretty key point here, and I don't want to rush past it. So, yeah, so... I believe they probably are the same. There's a slight height difference, but also Golden Mayer, <laughs> who could be the ugly LBJ, um, Golden Mayer, there was a height difference there, but I also couldn't find a picture of Golden Mayer standing next to anybody. I found one of her standing behind Kennedy. But remember, I'm not going to spend the rest of the next few years studying about these people. I'm just telling you where I am with some of these things. So I still think Golden Mayer was played by um, LBJ, because, you know, it's not hard to trick the height, right? They just put the height there. I mean, am I ever going to be standing next to gold in my air to be able to verify your height? <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a height difference between Morrison and Chase. But the reason that it starts to make a lot of sense is this, okay? Because of the extremely high-level focus of Vietnam, that is nothing. And that whole Vietnam era, also very sadly, those that got tossed into Vietnam got totally brutalized afterwards. I mean, the breakup of the families, the disconnect from the public, you know, the kids were all out against the war. So the people coming home from Vietnam, it's a complex, complex, tragic time in human history that I just don't think that we should just like brush on past here because I that that all of that leads me to think that yeah I have a real easy time thinking that somebody like Morrison who was in a very famous band at that time who had the father who pulled that stunt with the leading so many people to their to, to their murder really okay this is mass murder on a scale that their other friends like Bundy and them have never even gotten close to, okay? So yeah, so I believe that somebody very high powered would have gotten this big trick. That's how they reward each other. So anyways, because there's a lot of indicators about the father and the family, and I'll just go through a few of them and hopefully, you know, go look for yourself, okay? Um, couple things that people, I found a couple of places. I just kind of breezed around when I was taking a break today. Um, his father divorced his mother and remarried into the Folgers coffee family, which connects to Abigail Folger and Laurel Canyon. Remember, I did that show about MK7, and it was all about Laurel Canyon. Also remember, laurel leaves are on about everything these freaks do. They love those laurel leaves. So that's very significant. All the military symbols have laurel leaves, okay? So Laurel Canyon is their area. And over history, there were a lot of famous murders in that canyon. So it's a, it's a pretty concentrated CIA spot. <laughs> they had that Lookout Mountain. Um, the Lookout Mountain CIA 
movies being done close to that Laurel Canyon area. I can't remember everything about that show, that era, but anyway, so. Um, Chevy Chase was named for his adoptive grandfather, Cornelius. And, the, and I, I'll get, I'll tell you a little bit about Cornelius, but you'll have to look because I'm not going to sit here and just go through the whole thing. So, the, 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 his grandfather's name was Cornelius. So he was named Cornelius Chase. And um, the nickname Chevy was bestowed by his grandmother from the medieval ballad, The Ballad of Chevy Chase. Probably has something to do with their genealogy and they're laying out some little tricks for us here, is my guess, okay? He was the descendant of the Scottish clan Douglas, and she thought the name was appropriate, Chevy Chase, okay? He is a 14th generation New Yorker and was listed on the social register at an early age. His mother's ancestors arrived in Manhattan starting in 1624. Among other ancestors are New York City mayors, and these other people, um, a Dutch Scheuer family. So, yeah, so, um, and another comment Chevy made was, so his family's really high up. I think I have something else about them here in a second, but Chevy once told people, he once was quoted as saying that people who defined themselves in, in terms of their ancestry were like potatoes. The best parts of them were underground. So, yeah, um, he also had dislike for his family and said that they were cruel, wicked people. And Morrison also had dislike for his father and said that they were a bunch of jerks. Um, yeah, so, yeah, right, just, just draw your own conclusions, okay? Um, as a child... Chase vacationed at Castle Hill, <laughs> the Crane's summer home in Ipsquad, Massachusetts. Chase's parents divorced when he was four. His father remarried into the Folger Coffee family, and his mother remarried twice. He has stated that he grew up in an upper-middle-class environment. Okay, so his... Whoever that frequent I was talking about before here, I didn't get... I didn't really look at this long enough to get these people's names memorized. <laughs> um, Chase Manhattan Banking, now called J.P. Morgan Chase and Company, formerly American Holding Company, founded April 2nd, 1799. That is who Chase traces back to, okay? Is now called J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. Okay, that that's his his people. Okay, the Chase National Bank was organized September the twelfth, eighteen seventy seven, by John Thompson, who named the bank to honor the late U.S. Treasury Secretary Solemn B. Chase. Now Solemn B. Chase. I'm sorry, I'm a little confusing. <laughs> Solemn B. Chase. I'm just giving you some things to go look for. Solemn B. Chase is the grandfather who started all this stuff, okay? And he's the one that he was the adoptive grandfather to Chevy Chase. And then all these divorces, I don't have the brain power right now to get it all straight. But it's pretty significant because 
I think that the Chase Bank and stuff, J.P. Morgan, I mean, they have a pretty good stranglehold on everybody, don't they? So anyway, so, <laughs> yeah, they look like the same. But anyways, decide for yourself. Here's the show on YouTube. So go to YouTube and you type exactly these words in and you will find the show. Because they did some of the ear analysis. Because if, if they do this thing about comparing ears in these photographs. See, this is the reason why I've only really talked about like JFK and um, Jimmy Carter. Because those, I mean, I can't even look at JFK, I mean, Jimmy Carter anymore without seeing JFK. <laughs> those, that is 100%. And these things could get way too weedy for me to deal with. But because of all of this juncture of time with Vietnam this deal with Morrison, his dad, and possibly Chevy Chase, it just is a little bit too interesting Interesting to me to just ignore at this point. Okay, so that's it for the Chase family and their deal. So, yeah, I would say that there's definitely something there. Okay, let's get on to these generations, and I'm going to do an overview, and then I will get even further into... Now, remember, I'm only data-dumping right now because of stuff that I've been working on for the last several months. So, just to put all of the rest of this stuff into context, I thought it wouldn't make any sense because I'm not going to show up in a couple months or whatever and say, hey, I think it's 1840, without showing how my thinking got us there, right? So... That's why I'm going through this. So I think after today, I will be done with the major updates like this. So, it, and you could also timestamp the shows, you know, on your own. If you want to go back and listen to certain categories, just don't count on me to do it for you. So. <laughs> okay. One thing that came out of when I was looking a long time ago is that, um, keep in mind that people said somewhere that they said their grandparent born in 1887, died in 1973, referred to the 70s, 80s, 90s, and meant the 1870s, etc. So people from the 1880s or that era would likely be referring to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but they would be meaning the 1870s. You know what I mean? So there's some language that's going to go on here to start to look for. So let me give you just an overview. This is where I first started looking. So, well, how is this stuff categorized? I mean, and they have everything so categorized. So I, I found a real basic one. So let me start here with that. Generations. They claim that prehistoric and pre-colonial was up until 1607. The colonial period was 1607 to 1765. Okay, 1765 to 1783, consider the American Revolution. And then these things evolve <clears throat> in a minute, but this, this will get our, this is where I first got my head going around um, how they had some of this stuff organized, okay? 1789 to 1849, now we start to perk up our ears here, right? What's there? Well, that's called the Federalist Era. The Federalist Era was 1788 to 1801. 1801 to 1807 was considered the Jeffersonian era, okay? Interestingly enough, and they have other eras, like I really got engaged in the the key eras that I'm looking at are very significant. So they like to call these things eras. So 1817 to 1825 was the era of good. 
Um, then, of course, the Civil War era was 1850. That's when that camera came in, right? To 1865. Then they called 1865 to 1877 the Reconstruction Era. Now, I would start to argue, but I'm not right there yet. I would start to guess that this Reconstruction Era is probably a time we want to circle back to, right? 1865 to 1877. So, the Gilded Age, 1877 to 1895. Get those birds up in the cage ready to fly to their doom. <laughs> then, 1896 to 1916, Progressive Era. And that was primarily that era with all of those, um, you know, those fairs and expositions and all of that. And, of course, in my mind, the jury is still out on all of that stuff, but this stuff is has my attention first. So, so then we have the World War One era. Eight nineteen eighty seven. Wait a minute. Oh, excuse. Nineteen seventeen to nineteen nineteen. World War One. Now here is a key juncture in my little rabbit brain. The Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties introduced those tall men in wigs called the flapper girls okay dancing their way into our hearts those flapper girls so yeah the flapper girls came onto the scene introducing loose lifestyles women to smoke and drink and have sex and wear skimpy clothes and all that that was the flappers part of the golden roaring 20s that was 1920 to 1929 everybody was singing and having a blast right well that didn't last for long. The Great Depression, 1929 to 1941. Funny how singing and dancing is always in the middle of some real horrors in this country, isn't it? Just saying. Okay, so the Great Depression, 1929 to 1941. World War II, 1941 to 1945. These people are just the masters of chaos now, aren't they? And it's just interesting to me when I look at all, like, organized in a row and can see, wow, this kind of all ran in together, didn't it? So the post-war era was considered to be from 1945 to 1964. And then, of course, we have uh, 1971 in there, which I've discussed extensively. <laughs> so, yeah, civil rights era, 65 to 1980. Reagan era, Reagan era, that, that's the key to the mental health stuff, 1981 to 1991, that was when they were all effectively tossed into the streets at that unfortunate time. Okay, so 1991 to 2008 is considered post-Cold War era, 1991 to 2008, <laughs> just recently. <laughs> When I start looking at all these dates, like 18, I have to keep looking and thinking, is am I looking at 18 or not? Anyway, so yeah, <laughs> post-Cold War, 1991 to 2008. I guess, well, this country has never not been at war. I, I think I've talked about this in the past. I, I don't think I could find any time in history, but maybe one or two, that there wasn't an active war going on. Um, <laughs> these were some pretty big red flags we all seemed to have overlooked, right? Okay, so now they're calling this the modern day which would be from 2008 to the, <clears throat> excuse me, 2008 to the present. 
but I'm going to come back with a breakdown of this. And it has, it's fascinating how they went from all these different times from the lost generation to Gen X and just some common things around the world. And I'll give you just a real brief overview because they, they came up with an entire, entire list of things. Okay. And it, it was happening all over the world, but I've only been able to look at what's going on here because it started in Europe and then came over here. So that's where the real connection is. But I will also give you some terms to look for because this thing got strung out all around the world. And I highlighted some of them, like what do they call these generations in Italy or these other countries? So yeah, it's very interesting how they have all this labeled and categorized as far as who we are. And so let me come back to that in just a minute there. Okay, while we're on the chain of thought about who are these people and who are we, let me get to this next category. Quite interesting. Um, remember, this file that I'm sharing with you now is kind of in different sections because it's information that I gathered that led me to a date to look at some specific things about transition periods, like, you know, the MK7 era, you know, the Civil War era, all those, the, put the eras into a different kind of a concept is what I'm trying to say. But first, let me open with an interesting piece about the gypsies. They rarely or ever remain in one place more than 30 days, but ever as though bearing God's curse with them after the 30th day, go like vagabonds and fugitives from one locality to another in the manner of the Arabs with small, oblong, black, low tents and run from cavern to cavern because the place where they establish themselves becomes in that space of time so full of vermin and filth that it is no longer habitable. This was, this was the first written account in Western Europe of the people who would become to known as gypsies or Romanis. Over the next four centuries, these people who began their journey in northern India a thousand years prior would cross every kingdom and principality in Europe. By the 18th century, they had traveled to America, and today they live all over the world. So let's take a look at some of these categories. Um, Okay, let's get some definitions going straight here first, okay? Um, I pulled up, there is a timeline of generations in the Western world, okay? It shows the retirement age and life expectancies, okay? 
The Western world includes Western Europe, the Americas, and Australasia. I think that means Australia. But anyway, so many variations exist. Yes, they do. There's a lot of fuzzy areas, but we're not going to get ourselves hung up on that. We're just looking for the general thing. They first start off with the Lost Generation. And that is from 1883 to 1900. Interesting, it was called the Lost Generation, right? And that was at a time when the trains were rolling and the homesteading was going on, 1883 to 1900. Now, we now know that a lot of the homesteading took place between 1901 to the early, you know, 1920, late 1920s. So 1901 to 1927, that group is called the Greatest GI Generation. And then from 1928 to 1945, that is called the Silent Generation. And then, of course, we have the Baby Boomers, which is my generation, booming those babies, right? Probably Baby Boomers might also mean something else now that we have the children on the trains entering the picture with new data, right? The children on the train became the parents of the baby boomers, right? And so the children on the train had baby boomers and then, you know, my generation because the people riding on the trains would have been people my parents' age because my mom was, I'm not, I'm not suggesting my mom was on a train, but I'm just saying that uh, in 1926, my mom was born. And so that would put her in that train era, right? Um, so if my mom was in the train era, then I became a baby boomer, right? So baby boomers then had kids. So baby boomers, 1946. So yeah, my mom's generation had the baby boomers, right? So the baby boomers then, um, huh, would really be a scattered mix of people, right? If you think about it, because all that influx of all those kids into the silent generation, you know, I would say most of these babies probably got moved during the silent generation, which is from 1928 to 19... Somewhere in there, I think, is where all the babies got moved around. The incubators, the orphan trains. Just because they say the trains ran during a certain time frame doesn't mean that's really true, right? I think we can agree to that. So... Yeah, and then after Generation X um, in 1965 to 1980, that's an interesting name for that group, right? Generation X, like they've taken away the DNA or something by that point. Yeah, Millennials. Um, anyway, I'll get back into more of this stuff down here. Um, yeah, it's just interesting when you look at it in a whole date concept of these things. Generations can be defined by family structure, stage of life, or historic events, but most often they're categorized as this word called cohorts. See, I always have to first figure out what words they're using, right? And then I also have to look at a map (laughs) to figure out what part of the world we're talking about. So this cohort thing will come up a lot. So we need to know, we need to learn a new word today, kids. The word is cohorts. It is people born during a particular period in time. Catchy labels such as baby boomers, millennials, and Gen X and Gen Z tend to stick with each cohort, which are assumed to have shared experiences, behaviors, and ideals. 
This is known as a cohort effect. So if you, I, I don't know why they have to come up with this word, but they use it so we need to know what it means. So a cohort effect is a research result that occurs because of the characteristics of the cohort being studied. A cohort is any group that shares common historical or social experiences like their year of birth. Cohort effects are a concern for researchers in fields such as sociology, epidemiology, and psychology. So there, that group is more worried about these cohort effects. Well, we're just trying to understand how this all works, though. So. Okay, the Spanish... I put it, I, I, I made some notes to myself because there is a gap in data here that I will be getting back to. So I'm just showing you the raw data right now. And I said to myself, the Spanish were among the first Europeans to explore the New World, which is what this place is considered. New World, New World Order, yep, yep, yep. And the first to settle in what is called the United States. So the Spanish, if we could figure that those flamenco dancing Spanish people would also be gypsies or Romanis, you know, possibly. It's a connection there, right? So by 1650, England had established a dominant presence on the Atlantic coast. So whatever, right? Okay, the American Revolution was an ideological and political revolution. Well, I don't know about any of this stuff. But okay, here's where I had my notes because... The first generation I could find listed was a generation called the Missionary Generation. And the Missionary Generation is a designation given by these people called Strauss and Howe in their book, Generations. Because, see, people have been coming along and naming these generations since, you know, it's been happening. So... The generation names and stuff all became a little bit squishy over time. So this is how I understand this to have happened, okay? So the missionary generation was designated by this Strauss and Howe in this book they wrote. And this is where I found the big gap because I found the missionary generation. But the only thing I could find prior to the missionary generation was the America declared its independence on July 4th, 1776. So they essentially, now I have to get back and look. I'm not 100%, but I made a note to myself and said, what the hell, nobody knows anything in between here? Yeah, so it appeared at the time I was thinking that um, the missionary generation was people born in the United States between 1860 and 1882. That's why I was looking at the missionary generation, because that is right around that time. Well, there's a big gap. So the gap occurred 1776, that's it. 1776, Treaty of Paris, 1783. It kind of left off the trail there, right? So then I picked it up again in missionary generation, which is pretty key here because 1860 to 1882. And then it gets really interesting because, remember, that would be when the time they would likely be starting the introduction with, well, we know now, we know now that the missionary generation also was the one that introduced all of the um, stuff to do with the Civil War, all those insane asylums. 
in that period, 1860 to 1882. So then the next generation was the lost generation. And it was people who came into adulthood during World War I. Lost in this context refers to as a disoriented, wandering, directionless spirit of many of the war's survivors in the early post-war period. The term is also particularly used to refer to a group of American expatriate writers living in Paris during the 1920s. Gertrude Stein is credited with coining the term, and it was subsequently popularized by Ernest Hemingway, who used it in the epigraph for his 1926 novel, The Sun Also Rises. The quote he used was, You are all a lost generation. <laughs> so, yeah, when you start to compile the other stuff we've been talking about recently with... Um, you know, knowing more about what date we're looking at, knowing more about um, how some of these things may have transpired. It starts to, it starts to really make a lot of sense at this point, doesn't it? Um, so in more general sense, the lost generation is considered to be made up of individuals born between 1883 and 1900 in the wake of the Industrial Revolution. So... Members of the lost generation grew up in societies which were more literate, consumerist, because buying stuff, and media-saturated than from before, but which also tended to mainly stick to conservative social values. Well, yeah, they took care of the conservative social values, and I'll get to there in a minute here. Young men of this cohort were mobilized on a mass scale for the First World War. Round up the men. Boy, what a defining time now that we know what they were doing with the um, transgenders and the um, hormones and all that. So, young men of the cohort were mobilized on a mass scale for the First World War. That also takes the young men out of the family. I mean, it has a, a social impact. It's just <laughs> tremendous, okay? a conflict which was often seen as the defining moment of their age group's lifespan. Young women also contributed to and were affected by the war, and its aftermath gained greater freedoms politically. Yeah, boy, did they. Yeah, the women became, you know, I'll get to that. The lost generation was also heavily vulnerable to the Spanish flu pandemic and became the driving force behind many cultural changes, particularly in two major cities, what became known as the Roaring Twenties. Huh. The first appearance of the flapper style in the United States came from the popular 1920 Francis Marion film. You can look for that, 1920 Francis Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N film, the Flapper. I've seen that film. It's a good one. Okay, later they experienced the economic effects of the Great Depression and often saw their own sons leave for the battlefield of the Second World War. In the developed world, they tended to reach... Hey, hey come on, you guys. This is not the time. The cat is blocking the doorway to the dog. And Hold on one second here. Please stop. I have a little gang of cats. These cats only weigh about six or seven pounds. They're like 
live with a few little gangsters here. Um, one of them will get on top of things and swat <laughs> Marcos, who weighs about 60 pounds. They'll swat him on his rear end. Yeah. So, anyways, let me get back here. Um, so, you want to see the movie, the 1920 Francis Marion film called The Flapper, okay? Later, they experienced the economic effects of the Great Depression and often saw their own sons. See, the war thing seems to have been going from one generation to the next, hasn't it? Because the First World War guys are now seeing their kids go off to Second World War. In the developed world, they tended to reach retirement and average life expectancy during the decades after the conflict. But some significantly outlive the norm. Well, whatever, okay. Um, the greatest generation was also known as the GI generation and the World War II generation. So I'm not going to get into the mud on all these cohort deals. But what's interesting is the silent generation that I was looking at. It's a demographic cohort following the great generation and preceding the baby boomers. The silent generation is generally defined as people born from 1928 to 1945. By this definition and the U.S. Census data, there were 23 million silent generations in the United States as of 2019. So what I was looking at here was there has to be natural breaks in time when they could rejig things, right? So I'm guessing, you know, there's some system here that they could figure that, well, people are only alive to this age, so we only have to re redo the writing of the history for so many years. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I would encourage you to look because it's interesting that they got into the Gen X and they got into the Millennials. Those poor millennials. Well, every generation, they got every generation. So it's best just to look at them all in general, right? So, yeah, I think that um, I'm going to be closing out here. And I, I, I'm not finished by any means with any of these generations. I need to figure out why that gap in the data and a lot of other things. So I just wanted to give you all this data while I was still there. Otherwise, I would be going past it. Now, I'm going to be playing a song here at the end. It's called American Pie. And you're going to ask, well, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it kind of closes a little bit of a gap here. Because prior to the MK7 generation, which was my generation, there was a group of musicians right prior to this whole deal, okay? And um, this song is about that group. So American Pie is a song by American singer and songwriter Don McLean. It was recorded and released on the American Pie album in 1971. The single was the number one U.S. hit for four weeks in 1972, starting January the 15th, and just eight weeks on the Billboard. Okay, so it was a pretty uh, interesting song because uh, I got to get scan down here why I find it interesting. <laughs> okay. When you hear this song, you'll hear the repeated mentioned phrase. It'll keep saying, the day the music died. It'll say, um, let me read you a lyric here and then this make more sense. The song goes like this. A long, long time ago, 
I can still remember how that music used to make me smile, and I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance, and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver, and every paper I'd deliver, bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. I can't remember if I cried. When I read about his widowed bride, something touched me deep inside the day the music died. So um, what this is talking about, which is significant, because there is that little gap in time right before um, Morrison and the gang came on board, okay? So the, they repeatedly mentioned that phrase, the day the music died. It refers to the plane crash in 1959 that killed the early rock and roll stars Buddy Holiday, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens. So yeah, 1959, those three were supposedly wiped out in a plane crash. <laughs> These things become such money makers, right? Um, so that ended the era of early rock and roll. And this became the popular nickname for that crash. So the nickname was called The Day the Music Died when these other people got supposedly killed in that plane wreck. However, the overall theme of the song goes beyond mourning, it goes beyond mourning his childhood friends and reflects the deep cultural changes and profound disillusionment and loss of generation, loss of innocence of his entire generation. So yeah, it, it's about a loss of a generation, but he's talking sort of about this Buddy Holly thing, but it's, it's mourning the loss of that generation. So anyway, lots to do here. So be safe out there. Goodbye for now. A long, long time ago I can still remember How that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day the music died So bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye Singing, this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die Did you write Dancing in the 
met a girl who sang the blues And I asked her for some happy news But she just smiled and turned away I went down to the sacred store Where I'd heard the music years before But the man there said the music wouldn't play And in the streets the children screamed The lovers cried and the poets dreamed But not a word was spoken The church bells all were broken And the three men I admire most The Father, Son and the Holy Ghost They caught the last train for the coast The day the music died And they were singing Bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And them good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing, this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die They were singing Bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye Singing, this'll be the day 